Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I really hope this finds each of you well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Absolutely delighted to have this opportunity to interview the compelling author, blogger, and companion to others in grief and healing named Casey Gaunt, who will be speaking to us today from Solana Beach, California, where he lives with his wife, Hillary. Casey earned degrees in business, law, and an MBA from the University of Southern California. And after 43 years practicing corporate and real estate law in San Diego, he is now retired. In 1970, Casey's father died by suicide when Casey was just 20 years old. And in 2008, Casey's 24-year-old son, Jimmy, Casey's 24-year-old son, Jimmy, who was a rising star and professional writer, was accidentally struck and killed by a car while he was walking home from a party. Casey and his deceased son, Jimmy, published their first book in 2015, titled Suffering is the Only Honest Work. Jimmy contributed much of what is in the book, including its title, and more than earned posthumous credit as the book's co-author. In his new book, titled When the Veil Comes Down, Casey shares a stunning revolution, revelation he has, come on, I read, speak. Casey shares a stunning revelation he has received that there is coming a time when there will be no separation between us on this side of the veil and our loved ones on the other side, because when the veil comes down, that is where heaven will be. That time is closer than we might think. And the key to unlocking that door is to help others with their healing. This revelation illumines the mission of Grief and Rebirth podcast, which is to inspire healing and to present the many ways we each can heal. I have many questions for Casey about his remarkable book, When the Veil Comes Down, and much more. But first, we need to take a quick minute to show some love to our sponsors. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, Casey, a warm, heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Thank you, Irene. So great to be here with you. It's going to be a pleasure. We are going to have a lot of fun. And this is, I loved your book. I just loved your book. I can't recommend it more highly to everyone listening. Let's begin with this question. Your father was a World War II hero and the strongest man you knew. Please tell us about your dad and your reaction to his suicide when you were just 20 years old. Well, my dad, uh, as you mentioned, uh, was a, uh, a highly decorated soldier in the army, uh, served two and a half years in the South Pacific during World War II. Uh, he uh, achieved the rank of major 
when he was 24 years old, he was the youngest to achieve that rank in the Pacific Theater. Um, he won a Legion of Merit, which is for meritorious service, two bronze stars. Uh, he became the battalion commander, was in charge of over 600 men, half of whom didn't come home. Um, and so, you know, my dad at, at a very early age, um, not only exhibited these very strong leadership qualities and ability to lead men, um, but he also saw way too much um, as all those men did that were fighting uh, in World War II and in particularly the South Pacific. Um, and uh, he came home with wounds uh, we couldn't see. Um, and he carried those with him like so many men did. Um, but my dad was uh, uh, a, uh, a voracious reader. He taught himself Spanish uh, at the age of 40 because uh, he went to work for my grandfather, uh, Vernon Case uh, and his uh, foundation company. And they were opening offices in Panama and San, uh, Puerto Rico and Brazil. Uh, and my dad felt it would be helpful if he learned how to speak Spanish. So he's taught himself. He loved music. Um, he played, he loved to play in the stock market. He was just, he was intellectually curious. Um, uh, he was strict. Uh, he was a, you know, a tough commandant in the home and he traveled a lot. Uh, so he was, you know, uh, it seemed to me that he was gone more than he was home uh, as I was growing up. Um, um, during the last couple of years of his life, um, we all could see that he was, he was declining a little bit. Um, he was not himself, um, um, but he refused to get help as a lot of the men did, you know, that just, you know, we're talking 1970. Yeah. yeah. In those days it wasn't really accepted. That's right. Yeah. And um, so um, uh, I came home for Christmas. Uh, we were living in the Chicago area. I came home for Christmas, uh, uh, 1970. Um, uh, I thought my dad was in Panama on a business trip. And uh, then we got the word the next morning that uh, he shot himself in his office uh, uh, that night, the night I got home. And, uh, uh, you know, it was devastating. My, my, my sister was 13 at the time. I have uh, an older brother, uh, two, year, two and a half years older, uh, and a very strong mother. Uh, my mother was a lioness, um, um, but it, it was it, it was just so shocking and unfathomable uh, that this strong man would do something like that. That that was the decision that uh, was the only one left to be made. And so, uh, in addition to the shock, I became very angry. Uh, I was very upset with the fact that he you know, did this to me, did this to my family. Um, and, um, and so the way I dealt with it is I buried his memory. I did everything I could to forget about him. I wanted nothing to do with him. And it was that way for um, 38 years. Wow. And we're going to talk about what, what broke that log jam a little later in this interview. I'm so sorry. That must have been so traumatic for you. And then you had you you lost your son Jimmy. Could you tell us 
He was wonderful. He was gifted like you are, like your dad was. And would you like to tell us about him and share what your relationship with him was like before he transitioned? I'd love to. Um, Jimmy, um, it's funny. Um, from, from almost the moment he was born, I, I never thought of him as being a baby or young. He always seemed older to me. Um, and, um, and that kind of told me, I later on figured out he was just an old soul. He'd, he'd been, he'd done a lot of laps here before. Um, but, you know, he was a kind kid. Um, he was a driven kid. He, this, this, this kid taught himself to read when he was five years old because he wanted to be able to read the box scores in the baseball section of the newspaper um, and also read the baseball cards that he was collecting. Uh, he was lights out smart. He was by far the smartest kid in every class he was in. Um, he too um, learned Spanish because he went to a bilingual uh, class in Solana Beach. And by the sixth grade, he was fluent in Spanish and gave the commencement speech for the sixth grade class, half in English, half in Spanish. My goodness. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's awesome. Holy moly. <laughs> and... You know, by the time he was in high school, uh, and he was a superstar athlete, you know, he was on the football team, star wide receiver, he was the, uh, you know, an elite high jump specialist in track, but, but he's, he's now gravitating, he was a voracious reader as well. Um, and he was reading books that nobody else was reading. Um, and he was the dream student in, in high school for his teachers, just because of his intellectual capabilities and curiosities, which he carried forward into college. And he also went to USC, um, was a trustee scholar, uh, which is a very prestigious, full paid ride uh, to USC. And uh, he majored in Spanish and English, spent a summer in Madrid after his freshman year. Yeah. Um, uh, learning and studying Spanish literature. Then he went to, had spent his senior year in college in uh, London, attending Queens uh, College University, where he studied, studied English liter literature and theater. And by this time, he had already written three plays, wow. two of which had been produced by the USC theater department. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we were close. Uh, we were just very, very close. And um, I share in the book, um, in the chapter, um, uh, if you write it, they will come. Uh, the birthday, or pardon, me, pardon me, the Father's Day card he wrote to me in 2006. Uh, he wrote it when he was still in London. And basically he, he thanked me for for giving him permission to do whatever he wanted to do. Um, he didn't have to be like me. He didn't have to go to law school. Uh, he could pursue his, his passion. Whatever your passion is, I encouraged him to do that. And he found writing then acting, um, playwriting, screenplay writing. And he was very grateful for that. And I was humbled that he also felt the same way that um, 
that I wanted him to be successful at what he wanted to do, not me, right. not what I did. Right. You were a good dad and he was an amazing son. How, yeah. did, how, did, how did that accident happen? Just a freak accident, Irene. Um, uh, he had just come home um, from Los Angeles uh, where he was uh, uh, living and working. He was you know, just starting out on his career. He had just finished ghostwriting a screenplay for a major Hollywood director um, and had, was still finishing his own screenplay um, that uh, he wanted to have made into a movie. But he came home because uh, he was going to be going home, the, going out the next week to Vietnam on a uh, uh, kayaking trip with oh. a, a bunch of friends. Wow. Uh, so anyway, um, he came home that night. It was, I'll never forget it. It was um, opening day of the 2008 Olympics. And um, we're kind of watching it on TV and he's making fun of like the, you know, the teams from some of these obscure countries and they're walking, you know, they got two people and, you know, it's, it, and we're, we're just having this great banner. And then he gets up, he gets a call, he gets up, it's like around 9.30 at night. And he said, hey, I'm gonna go meet up with some friends that are in town. Um, and uh, I may not make it home tonight uh, cause we're gonna go, you know, hit some bars, have some beers. And if not, I'll see you tomorrow morning. We'll take a hike. I go, great, we kissed goodbye. Uh, before he left. I love that you were kissing your 24 year old son goodbye. We always, I always kissed. Her. Yeah. Always kissed. My dad and I kissed too. That was that. I, so I learned well. that from him. Yeah. So, but uh, uh, our daughter, Brittany, was with us watching um, the Olympics. Her husband of one year was fishing in Alaska with his father and two brothers. So, Jimmy leaves, but then he pops up and looks at Brittany and says, I'm so glad you married Ryan. And then he pops down. Those were the last words we heard from him. Wow. So um, um, later that night, he, um, um, after, after many beers, he went home with uh, a buddy of his and uh, was going to spend the night. And for some reason, he got up like around 4.30 in the morning and decided he was going to try and walk home. It would be a five-mile walk. And uh, later, we found out this was something Jimmy did, kind of on a routine basis. If he you know, was out drinking, uh, he would like to get up early and walk, maybe walk it off, or just get fresher or what have you. But he picked the wrong, the wrong road to do that. It was a very windy road. Um, uh, east of from where we live, uh, no sidewalks, no shoulders. And uh, a young man who was, I think, also 24, 23, was driving to work to a golf course. He had the early shift. It's like 5.30 in the morning. And his car comes around a curve. And Jimmy is right on you know, the edge of the shoulder and the road and hits him. And that was it. That was it. So, accident it was just a pure accident nobody's fault in the wrong place at the wrong time for both jimmy and this poor driver that uh, that struck him and i want to say that in your book there's a wonderful um you talk about your journey with this yeah. young driver and what happened yeah. and i think people would really want to um read about that because 
there was so much grace that you came to and compassion and helping to heal this young driver. It was yeah. a wonderful, wonderful story. So three months after the accident, the repressed grief over your father's suicide, in addition to your intense grief over Jimmy, took you to a very dark place. But then you were connected with both your father and your son in a truly miraculous way that led to your spiritual awakening. Please share both your miracle and your spiritual awakening with us, Casey. The, um, the death of Jimmy really brought forth the, the death of my dad um, because I never dealt with his death, as I mentioned. And I started seeing a, a, a psychologist, I referred to him as Dr. A, um, six weeks after Jimmy died. I needed help. I mean, I was in a, I was in a, in a bad place. I can um, relate. And he actually, um, uh, he, he was wonderful. Um, I, you know, I'd see him like every Tuesday. It was like Tuesday, not Tuesday with Maury, but I had my Tuesday with Dr. A. Um, and uh, he said to me, he said, first session, he said, we're not even going to begin to start with Jimmy until, until we deal with your dad. Um, and so that's what we did. That's who we worked on first. But anyway, um, um, it was November 3rd, 2008, three months after Jimmy died. I'm in my law office. I get a call, uh, or actually my secretary brings in a message. She said, you just got a call from a woman named Emily Sue Buckberry. She says that you were together many, many years ago in Colwood, West Virginia. And you left something there um, and she wants to return it to you. And my secretary, she says, what, did you have a baby there? I go, I go no, I swear, I, I know I did. I know that didn't happen. Um, uh, and I, I thought, I, I remember Colwood, but I don't remember this Emily Sue at all. Um, Long story short, I spent the summer after I graduated from high school in Colwood, West Virginia. If, if you've uh, read the book by Homer Hickam, Rocket Boys, or ever saw the movie October Sky, uh, which was a film made in 1998, uh, that's where it takes place in Colwood. Um, and I was there, my dad's and grandfather's construction company was uh, uh, installing a ventilation shaft for a new section of the coal mines there. And, uh, so basically, my job was digging a hole, uh, digging a very big hole. Um, but it was a it was an amazing summer, um, and I met Emily Sue there. Um, but anyway, I, I I call her back. You know, initially I'm thinking, do I really want, you know, do I want to open this door? I don't know. I don't remember her. What she reach? What what is she doing reaching out to me at this point in time? Anyway, I call her back, and she basically says, you know, you may not remember me, and I. So I said, yeah, I barely do. But um, when you left um, to go home, I heard you were leaving. And so I stopped by your room because I wanted to say goodbye. You know, we both we all stayed in this clubhouse uh, hotel owned by the coal company. And she said, I could see you were gone. But I looked at uh, a wastebasket outside your room and there was a letter outside of an envelope. So I reached down and picked it up and I saw it was a letter from your father. Mm -hmm. And I, I read a few lines and I go, wow, this is a beautiful letter. Why did Casey throw this away? 
and it was marked personal and confidential on the envelope. So she said, I, uh, I think I better keep this and try and get it back to Casey. Uh, well, 38 years or 40 years later. She forgot all about it, obviously. She, yeah, she kept it and you know, it was in boxes. And then she comes across it as she's moving from one place to another. And so she yeah. goes, well, now we have Google's, I can find Casey. Have you, seen it? Have you seen the letter, Casey? Or was just, how did it find its way into the room? I, I never got the letter. Wow. Because when I read it, so she, she, we have a conversation. She tells me that, you know, she kept this letter. Uh, she didn't ask me about my dad on that call. And then she asked me the question, of course, you know, hey, do you have kids? And um, I she was a very gregarious woman, just like you, Irene. She's just, you know, ebullient. And um, she, uh, and I told her, yeah, we have a daughter and, you know, our son died. And I told her, I'm sorry to tell you this, our son died three months ago. And she just got, oh my God, you know, kind of stone cold silent. Like, what am I getting into here? You know, uh, why am I reaching out to him now? So um, she, uh, she sends me the letter. Uh, she said, I'm going to put her in uh, uh, special UPS delivery right now. You should have it tomorrow. Uh, I talked to her on a Monday. The letter doesn't come the next day. doesn't come the next day. Um, anyway, um, that Saturday, um, uh, my daughter, her, her husband, Ryan, my mother, and I went down to the beach because um, we were going to spread some of Jimmy's ashes in the ocean. And uh, a beautiful day, uh, just a gorgeous day. Um, um, and my mother got tired, so I uh, drove her home. And then I swung by her house, looked in the mailbox, and there's the letter in the envelope that Mayor Emily Sue sent to me. I open it up and I begin to read the letter and I realize I never saw this letter before. I mean, I would have remembered this letter because my, it's a full two page handwritten on both sides in my dad's very neat handwriting. And he wrote it in June of 1968, two weeks after I arrived in Colwood. Um, but later that summer I was told you know, do you know that during those first couple of weeks you were there, people were going into your room and searching because they couldn't figure out what's the boss's kid doing in Colwood? Are they here to spy on us? Or, you know, what's this silver spoon in his mouth kid from Chicago doing in Colwood, West Virginia? And, and you know, I think that was a legitimate question to ask. But um, anyway, I, I think somebody, somebody side, side, lined that letter. It never got into my hands. And then they didn't know what to do with it. Anyway, so I'm reading the letter and my dad is telling me all about his early life. He talks about a depression in his youth. He lost a younger sister to diphtheria uh, when he was 14, she was nine. His parents were Christian scientists, so they didn't take her to the hospital where she could have gotten the the vaccine and the medicine to save her life. He never forgave his parents. He talked about um, his time in the war. Um, he talked about um, his insecurity. He wasn't sure if he was would be thought of as successful. I mean, he's talking to me in this letter like he's talking to me now, man to man. Um, and then he starts just writing how, you know, these beautiful words about his love for me and, you know, his hopes for me and 
that I have all the tools to become successful. And he closes the letter with this. He said, I'll be around. Anytime you want me, I'll be there. Wow. Because I care. I get this way every time I think of it. More than you'll ever know, my son, I'll love dad. And what I didn't mention is that day, that Saturday, November 8, 2008, was our son's 25th birthday. My gosh. Wow. The letter arrived on his birthday. Because my dad, 40 years earlier, knew that that day was going to be the hardest day of my life. And he was there with me as he promised he would. That is incredible. That is incredible. That is incredible. Did you, the woman who found it and found that woman who found it and sent it to you after you told her about it, she must have been knocked out. She freaked out. I mean, she played such a, a, a role in this, in this spiritual awakening. It was an awakening for her too. Total. And, and so when she found out about my dad and Jimmy and it arrived on Jimmy's birthday, she went, like stone silent. I couldn't, I couldn't reach her. And you know who she reached out to for guidance? Homer Hickam, the author of Colwood's Famous Boy. Um, and he told her, he said, Emily Sue, you get in there. You're part of this and you got to ride this with Casey. So you just get in there and suck it up and it's going to be okay. Wow. And it helped her. I'm sure it helped her with healing and help people around her also. Yeah. So this amazing story, the uh, this letter was made into an award-winning film. That's that's mind-blowing, fabulous. <laughs> How did this experience begin? Your second and most rewarding career as a writer, and companion to others in grief. And please tell us about the the film. That's incredible. I will. I'd love to. So, um, in. Um, in October of 2009, uh, we went, my wife and I, Hillary, Hillary and I went to Colwood, West Virginia. Um, the town, they have what they call October Sky Festival, and it's a celebration of the town's fame because of Homer Hickam. Um, and so uh, we met Emily Sue, uh, you know, had some lovely conversations with her, and I was able to thank her in person for what she had done. We met Homer Hickam and talked to him for a long time. And I was introduced um, uh, to this guy named Steve Date, who's from uh, Minneapolis. And he was also in Colwood because he had just finished making a film, uh, a documentary called Welcome to Colwood that he had been working on the last you know, three, four years. So, uh, uh, this person said, you've got to meet Steve because uh, he, he's going to want to hear your story. So we meet and I begin to tell him the story and he goes, do you mind if I film this? And so he uh, basically filmed me telling this story. Um, and, uh, and then uh, six months later, 
he came to visit us in San Diego because he wanted to get some additional shots of me reading from the letter and some other things. And so we bonded quite closely with him and, and um, his film, The Letter, um, was uh, just beautiful and 10 minutes and he entered it in several uh, film contests in the Midwest and East, East Coast and it won you know, several prizes. It won the best film um, in West Virginia of its genre. And it's, I was as happy for Steve as I was for, for ourselves. Just he, he created this beautiful thing for us. Um, and, and Steve and I remain very close. He's made other films for us. Um, what a validation. Then, what a validation. Yeah. And then, um, but when the, when the letter happened, you know, when that story unveiled, that experience, I wrote that story down and I shared it with family and friends. And um, because I knew, I knew, Irene, I knew when this happened and this letter arrived on, on the day that it did, this was not just for me and my family. This was something that needed to be shared. This was for everybody. I really felt that. Right. And so um, that began my, my, my venture, if you will, into writing. Jimmy was the writer, um, clearly. I, I wrote complex contracts, um, but uh, Jimmy put his pen in my hand and, and was directing me without question. I felt that. And so then a lot of other things began to happen. Um, um, you know, we, we, we go to, um, uh, to Belgium and, and Paris, uh, our first trip away. And Hillary and my sister see Jimmy cross the street uh, across from a restaurant that we were having lunch at in, uh, in Paris, you know? And then Hillary has another experience on, on a barge. And then these incredible uh, synchronicities begin to unfold that Jimmy is behind completely. And he's, reach, he's touching friends of his. These aren't just coming to us, they're, right. they're hitting right. his friends. And, and so I just start writing these down. You know, I figured, okay, you know, um, I'll, I'll be your scribe. So that's, that's what I did. Fabulous. Now you had, your first experience was with a medium who connected you with your dad. And there were profound messages your dad transmitted to you. Would you like to tell us about that, Casey? Yeah, I, I really would like to tell you about it. So um, uh, we saw a medium, um, a month after the letter arrived from my dad. Now, that was a different medium. Uh, that was Tara from Sedona. And we had, and, and Hillary and I went to that reading and, and we had several subsequent readings with her. But the reading that I write about, I, I write a little bit about uh, our first reading with Tara in the book. Uh, and then I, uh, I write about the reading I had with a, uh, a wonderful lady and medium, Chris Lynn in Colorado in February of 2020. And this was, interestingly, this was the first reading I had ever done without Brittany and Hillary. Uh, I did this one myself. And it was a birthday gift from my daughter. So that's what we do. We give each other readings. I, I, um, you're right <laughs> in my alley. I'm the same way. 
I mean, that's the best gift you can get. I mean, I mean come on. I often give people a, a, a healing session or whatever. I yeah. feel like the best thing I can do. Yeah. Priceless. So uh, during that reading, um, uh, Jimmy came through first. He always does. And, and he actually, in his, in his own way, said, you know, Dad, you've got to really get involved more with helping parents heal. And you need to be speaking uh, to them and to their group. You need, you know, you've been sharing stories with them on their website, but you need to actually get a microphone in your hand. Um, and then my dad came through and it was the first time my father had ever come through in a reading. And I suspect he's always been deferential to Jimmy. Um, but my dad came through and he said, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to you because you helped me heal. You helped me heal here. You gave me my heart back. And now I am able to help others. Wow. I mean, I was blown away. The medium was blown away. She's saying, wait, I thought, wait, we can help them? I thought they had all the help they needed over there. And this is something that I, I felt, I'd already felt internally that I was helping my dad by, you know, writing the story and writing about him. I wrote a very long story about him and it's on our website. I uh, included him in our first book uh, and I was sharing him. I was, I was, I was bragging about him. I was, uh, you know, uh, it, it, the, we, my family and I, my brother and sister and mother were finally beginning to talk together about him. We got him out of the darkness, you know, where we had locked him up for so long. And my extended family were talking about him. And for my dad to acknowledge that and say, you helped me heal. That was an epiphany for me. And that's the reason I wrote the second book. Well, you know, before I ask you your next question, I have to, there's so much about your story and my story that's like a ditto, you know, <laughs> because I had a similar experience. I had an abusive father, a troubled childhood. Mm -hmm. And um, I, after my husband died, I never wanted to, I spoke to mediums and all, I never really desired to speak to my father. I cannot tell you how many times my father has come through unbidden, asking me to not stop what I'm doing, because mm -hmm. as I help others to heal, and as I heal myself, he is healing on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I am helping him. It is just so, we are so in sync. Yeah with this and, and it's, I'm just, you're validating my truth and I'm validating yours. <laughs> so it's just amazing. And then after Jimmy died, you, your wife, Hillary, your daughter, Brittany, I love that you called yourselves team healing. <laughs> so tell us about the many forms, which is what I am trying to encourage people with this podcast to get healing. Tell us about the many forms of healing the three of you utilized. And when did you know Casey, that you'd healed enough to be able to begin to help others. Um, yeah, team healing. Um, I love that. It, as, I, as I mentioned, I, I think um, one, of the, one of the things I'll never forget is the day after Jimmy died, 
Um, Hillary, Brittany and I took a walk in, we, it's, it's a lagoon very near our house, uh, beautiful hiking trails. And it was, it was on that walk that Hillary stopped and we're looking out over the lagoon and the Pacific Ocean. And she said, we are not going to let this take us down because that would make Jimmy so unhappy and we will not make Jimmy unhappy. She laid the, the law down. She said, we're, you know, we, we made a choice right there that we weren't gonna tank uh, and we were gonna do it for Jimmy. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, a month after the letter arrived, we had our first reading together with Tara. It was fabulous, just a phenomenal reading. And, and Jimmy was just all over it and just blowing our minds with uh, the messages and uh, all the signs that, that he had been giving us. Um, and then um, uh, a few months later, we, or actually it was a month later, we had a, uh, a healing session with a shaman, uh, Jade uh, Wahoo. Now, what was that uh, like? What was that about? Because I've interviewed many, quite a few shamans on the on the podcast. And what did that shaman specifically do for you? So we had a, what they call a soul retrieval ceremony. Um, because in our first reading with Tara, uh, she looked at Hillary and she said, um, when Jimmy died, a part of you split and went with Jimmy. And she looked at Brittany and me and she said, the same thing probably happened to you too as well, but it's really strong with mom here. And Jimmy would like to come visit her. And he does come visit her in, in, in her dreams. And, but Hillary wants to be with him so much that he can't get that close to Hillary because you know, he wants her to stay with you guys. Scared the hell out of us. Um, so, uh, Tara said, you need to go meet with Jade, um, and have him do a soul retrieval ceremony and, um, to try and get some of your, your pieces back. Uh, so that's, and that, oh, that we did that on my, uh, 59th birthday. That was like my, my birthday present. That is one cool birthday present. <laughs> I had a, I had a very, very powerful reaction. Uh, during that ceremony, Hillary and Brittany less so, but I had a very, I was like, I felt like something really heavy came out of me and I just dissolved into tears. Yeah, and we all heard the scurrying around in the room while we had our eyes closed and Jade's pounding the drum and we're going into the different realms. And we asked Jade when we, you know, kind of, towards the end of the ceremony, I said, do you have a dog? Just no. So what was that scurrying we heard? You know, it was like somebody was shuffling around. He goes, oh, that was Jimmy. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't miss this. So then, then we did other readings together. We did um, uh, a, a very powerful workshop um, in November of 2009 in Sedona with Tara and other people that had suffered loss of a loved one. Um, and it was during that session, Brittany was 
Now she's three months pregnant. And Tara, um, we write a lot about, I wrote a lot about this in the first book, by the way, and we called it doing the work. Um, but it was during that uh, workshop that Tara was able to, through a play acting uh, session, get Brittany to admit that she was carrying this weight where she felt now it was her responsibility to make Hillary and me happy. And so that was her job. And we, you know, we're by now, we're all in tears, we're hugging and we're saying, no, it's not. That's not your job. Our, making us happy is not your job. We, you know, we all have to get to where we need to be. You've got to do what you need to do to get yourself in a good place. That was an epiphany for us. And then we did other workshops um, and readings, and we just talked a lot. We shared everything. If somebody would get a, have a dream, uh, we'd share it. If somebody, you know, had an experience, a sign, a message, we'd share it. So, and it was just that, you know, that constant interaction and check-in of how are you doing? How are you doing? Because we're, as you know, Irene, it, nobody grieves the same. We're yeah. not, you're, nobody's on the same page. You all are going at a different pace and, and a different, uh, you know, uh, a different road. But um, to answer your question, um, uh, when did I feel like I turned a corner? Um, so I was, as I said, I was writing a lot of stories, sharing these things with others, but you know, I was still kind of hiding behind my pen. And uh, by this time we had started the website, in, uh, Write Me Something Beautiful in 2011. Um, but it was 2013, five years later after Jimmy's death and I was at the gym and a buddy of mine that I work out with, uh, he asked me, he said, Casey, you know, a good friend of mine just uh, lost their son to an accidental drug overdose. When did you feel that you really started to heal? And I told him, I said, the answer just popped right in my head. I said, it was, it was at the point where I felt I could begin to help others. And I could sit down one-on-one -on -one with others and actually, you know, be a companion to them and not only listen to them, but also share some of the things that we've learned and experienced. And that was five years. It was a, it was a five-year um, slog for me to, to get to that point. Get to that point. Now you make a differentiation in the book between mending grief and healing grief. What do you see as the difference there? Well, um, yeah, there's a chapter called uh, Heal. What does that even mean? And the what does that even mean was a quote from uh, a friend of mine, uh, a dad, uh, who, uh, whose daughter, she was a twin um, with, with her brother, but she died uh, uh, of, of a tragic disease when she was 10 years old. And, and uh, subsequently during one of our conversations, the word heal came up. And that's when he said, what does that even mean? Because I think for a lot of people, um, heal, when they hear the word heal, it means to be made whole, to be restored to the way you were before. And instinctively, 
I know and others know uh, who have lost someone they deeply love, deeply love, that's not going to happen. You are never going to be the person you were before. That's true. So, right? Yes. Uh, you've changed. Absolutely. You're, you've changed. And, and so, so, uh, so that definition, uh, uh, I think, turns a lot of people off. But there's another definition that says heal also means to mend, to overcome a, an obstacle, to move forward, to, you know, to, to learn how to. So I like that term. I like, you know, mending um, as far as healing goes, because I think that is what, you know, we go through. We, uh, we've changed. Um, people around us have changed because they don't know how to interact with us, or many don't, right? Yeah. They don't know what to say. They don't want to do. Um, and we write a lot about that in the book um, and try to offer some helpful guidance as far as how do you be, how to be a better friend, a better colleague. You know, it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to bring it up. You know, they want to hear it. It's okay. Um, but, um, uh, you know, we learn how to wear our loss. We learn how to carry it. And sometimes I write in that chapter, I said, you know, a lot of times I'm wearing a mask. You know, I'm not walking around saying, oh, well, look at me, you know, poor Casey, you know, lost his dad to suicide and Jimmy's, you know, dead. And uh, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm, uh, you know, sharing stories, you know, but um, I've also learned how to take off my mask and I'm comfortable doing that with people I just meet because I feel what one, one thing that I've learned from this that I think is so important is I've learned when I take off my mask and it could be with like, I, this happened just a couple months ago with the dental hygienist who I just met for the first time. And she's babbling on, she's, you know, trying to make friendly conversation. Like, you know, you all do when you, know, you meet somebody and, you know, so do you have kids? And I could have, you know, said, yeah, we have a daughter and, you know, two grandsons. And, but I said, you know, um, I'm taking my mask off. You know, we had, we have a son, we have a son and he was killed in a car accident. She immediately launches into her story about her sister who, you know, almost died of cancer and then she did die. And then she's coming through in dreams and giving her advice on how to raise her high school daughter. And so what I learned is um, when we share our truth, our bad thing, we open the door and give others permission to share theirs. And without, with, without exception, people jump through. And that's how you deeply connect, right? Right. That's how you deeply connect with somebody. You people to heal, you validate their, yes. their you validate their reality, and then you can sometimes give them help and direction if right. they yeah. take it. Yeah. Now, you've yeah. got some really great stories in your book about proof of survival to the other side. Um, could you tell us briefly, tell us about the gifts Conrad Leslie received from his 20-year-old son who died in France, and briefly tell us the story about your friend Chris his dad and Chris's deceased 10 year old son. I love those <laughs> stories. Um, Conrad, um, 
and Paola Leslie, uh, who are now dear friends of ours. That's, that's another story in and of itself, how we connected. Um, they lived uh, nearby in, in Del Mar and, and we reached, we, we were connected with them about eight months after their son uh, and their only child, Nicholas, was uh, killed in the terrorist attack in Nice yeah. uh, uh, on Bastille Day in 2016 that claimed the lives of uh, 84 people. I remember that. Yeah. Um, and um, they were, to say, they were beyond devastated. Um, you know, Nicholas was their life. You know, they had built their life around him. And he was a also a phenomenal young man, uh, super smart, um, tremendous athlete, um, uh, kite surfer, scuba diver, adventurer. I mean, that's, he, he was a, you know just everything. Um, but um, um, fortunately for the Leslie, shortly after uh, uh, Nicholas died, uh, they began to receive messages. One of them was um, they were in their house in Del Mar. They've subsequently moved to uh, Hawaii, but they were in their house in, in, Del, in Del Mar. And uh, a friend of theirs who was also an intuitive um, uh, healer uh, was talking to them and really trying to help Paola. And um, Paola is asking this woman, um, where is Nick? Where is my son? And this woman's saying, he's in the light. Nick is in the light. And Paola says, well, what does that mean? Like there's, you know, a flashlight shining on him. And what, what does that mean? At the same time, this is going on. Conrad is looking at this huge blow up photo of Nick, of him coming out of the water. Uh, after a kite surfing session in Del Mar and Conrad took the photo, but he's looking at it and, and he's saying, God gone it. I, and it, it's a photo that they, they blew up and used for uh, one of Nicholas's uh, memorial uh, gatherings. And so Conrad's saying, you know, I wish I had done a better job with that photo because, you know, the, the, the light is kind of dark over Nick. The sun was, um, was behind him and you really can't see his features. And, you know, at the same time, this is going on. Paola is, you know, yelling at, yelling at this intuitive, like, what do you mean he's in the light? At that moment, it was a foggy day in Delmar, as it often is. We get this June gloom and uh, the sky breaks open, a beam of light comes through their skylight, hits this photograph, and Nicholas's face is just lit up. And they both start crying and, and they get it. Nicholas is in the light. He is showing us he's in the light. He's in a good place. Right. That was their first, that was their first of many signs. Wow. Now, um, let me briefly tell you the story of Chris. Uh, Chris was a, uh, a colleague of mine at uh, a company I worked for in San Diego. He did too. Um, and um, uh, his 10-year-old son um, in 2000, I think it was 2011, um, passed away from a very rare blood disease. 
Um, and he was, as I said, he was 10 years old and his name was Christian. Um, <clears throat> in uh, 2016, so we're now four or five years later, uh, Chris's father suffered a massive stroke and was placed in the intensive care unit at a in a hospital in San Diego. And he's on a ventilator, he's on um, life support, and he is, uh, 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 he's conscious, his mind is functioning, but the only thing he can do is blink his eyes. Um, and so the doctors worked out a way to communicate with him. So if they'd asked him a question and he blinked once, that was no. If he held his eyes closed for five seconds, that was a yes. So um, the day comes uh, and his father, you know, they ask him, do you want to stay on the machines? No. So uh, they make a, 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 an appointment for the next day to, to remove him off the uh, machines and, and he will pass over. So um, the family shows up at the hospital um, the next day for, for this. And one of the nurses is uh, giving uh, Chris's dad a bath, a sponge bath. And Chris said, hey, you know, we're, we're, we're all here and we're ready to proceed with, um, you know, whatever they're going to do. Uh, and the nurse looks at him. And she goes, well, is Christian going to join us? And Chris goes, what do you mean, Christian? I'm Chris. So, and uh, you know, I'm here. No, no, she goes, no, there was, there was a, a young man that was here earlier this morning before you all arrived. And I saw him standing by the door to your dad's room. And I looked up and asked him, I said, you know, can I help you? And he goes, yeah, my name is Christian. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just say a few words to my grandfather. And she goes, sure. So he comes in, she watches him kiss, Christian kiss his grandfather and start whispering in his ear and she leaves the room. So now Chris is talking to the nurse saying, well, what, who is this Christian? And she describes him as a young man around 15 years old. Um, and she said, oh, I must be mistaken. She's getting kind of flustered when Chris tells her, Christian died five years earlier. Uh, and she's like freaking out. And so she goes, well, I must have made a mistake that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she says, well, you know, we do have these cameras that, that capture anybody who comes in and out of the ICU unit, not in specific, specific rooms, but the unit. So they went and took a look at the camera feed. Um, and the only people they saw go in and out of the ICU during the relevant period were doctors, nurses, and the other family members. There was no Christian. So right before they're gonna take um, the dad off life support, Chris, my friend, bends over and whispers in his dad's ear. He asked me, he said, Dad, did Christian come visit you this morning? 
His dad goes, wow. Tears strolling down his cheeks. <laughs> Here's the guy. You can't Chris. make this up. You, you can't make this, make this up. You can't make this. You've got you've got a nurse that witnessed this. You've got, you know, the grandfather, you know. Uh, Christian was there to help his grandfather over. Mm -hmm. um, and this was really one of the first signs, big sign it was, and message that my friend Chris got from his son. That's outstanding. Yeah. And then the floodgates opened. That is now he was open to it. Oh my God, that is outstanding. Yeah. So on that note, and I love how authentic you are, Casey, and you know, and I can so relate. Um, please define what you call in your life experience, a partial death experience, and what's the meaning of the phrase eternal love? Um, so as a lot of these things <laughs> were happening, and um, you know, the letter from my dad and uh, you know, these synchronicities and messages and, and things that not only we were getting, but other parents are getting like the Leslie's and my friend, Chris and others. Um, I, I began to think about near death experiences and, you know, those are well-documented and people speak to those. I know you've had Dr. Uh, Eben Alexander on your podcast and, you know, he and Dr. Mary Neal, and they've had some phenomenal near death experiences where you go over, you know, you're, you're, you've actually kind of gone into some death state and you actually get a peek over into the other side and where our, our loved ones uh, are hanging out. And you may even get a chance to talk to them. But it occurred to me, well, it should work both ways, right? I mean, if we can go be with them on the other side, uh, then they certainly can come through and be with us. And so I, I just, I don't know if it's my own term, but I, I, I call those near life experiences because our, our loved ones, our kids, you know, Saul, your husband, they're, you know, they're near us here in life, right? What we call life right. because we're in body, yes. right? Uh, but they're, they're with us um, and, and they demonstrate and show us this in so many different ways. So um, that, that was, again, it was, you know, as I got thinking deeper about this and looking broader about, you know, what is, what's happening here? What's, what is all this? And then um, I, I hearken back to what Tara told Hillary and us during that first reading that a part of you split and went with Jimmy. And I very, very much felt that when I first got the news that Jimmy was killed. Uh, I felt a part of me was ripped out and was no longer part of me. Uh, and I felt at the time that that was a bad thing. Uh, that as we were talking, I will never be who I was before. I will never heal because, you know, a part of me is gone. That's right. Right. Absolutely. But what I didn't appreciate then, but what I then learned over the years is that, yeah, a part of me is 
with Jimmy. A part of me is with my dad. And that is the bridge that keeps us connected. Uh, there's a, in, the, in, in the book, there's a chapter uh, uh, called Priests, Mediums, and, 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 um, and Quantum Theory. Uh, there's, there's other chapters in the book that involve rabbis. Um, but um, just to make sure you're an equal opportunity. Exactly. Equal <laughs> and Buddhist. And we, have, and we have Buddhists too. So um, the, uh, uh, but one of the priests actually talked to me about quantum theory and the, the theory of entanglement, which says that if two objects are initially connected and bonded, but then split, no matter what the distance between those two objects that were previously entangled, if you, uh, if you affect one of them, the other one is immediately affected and impacted at the same time. And so what I was able to kind of put together in my head is that we are forever entangled with our our, our loved ones, why wouldn't we be? We've shared the same DNA. We share this, these memories. We share this love. Um, we, we, and, and part of us did go with them um, and, and are with them and are seeing things that they're seeing and, and they're doing the same for us here. We are entangled and we are forever joined with them. We are forever in love. That is eternal love. That's eternal love. And that that's love eternal never love. Dies. Yeah. Uh, never dies. Tell no. me about your website, because I think a few people on the, listening to this podcast will want to write you something beautiful. <laughs> so tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the title of the website um, really came and was inspired from a conversation, the last conversation Jimmy had with one of his very good friends, Eric. Um, they were at a Mexican restaurant here in Solana Beach. And this is probably a month before, before Jimmy died. And Eric was a budding writer, um, but was struggling with, you know, how to approach what he wanted to do. And, and Eric, of course, tells this story, not only to us, but he told it at Jimmy's memorial service, uh, where there were a thousand people. Um, uh, Jimmy told Eric, Eric, look, write me something beautiful and send it to me. And we'll go from there. And Eric bemoaned the fact that he didn't send Jimmy something before he died. But what he wrote and said at Jimmy's memorial service, oh, Phenomenal. He wrote something be really beautiful. So that's 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 where the name for the site uh, comes from. Write me something beautiful.com. And we started it in uh, 2011. Um, because by that time, and up to until that time, I was just writing and sharing with family and friends, all of these things and stories that were uh, uh, coming our way. 
and and it was just getting out of control. I mean, I couldn't keep track of what I was sending, and so I figured, all right, it's time to start a website, and and that was uh, that would be the platform for um, sharing stories, not only our own but stories from others, and it would be a, a nice way to you know have people um, uh, be able to look at it, interact with it, and send things to us. Yeah, That's beautiful. Then you you've done another wonderful thing for people. Um, you brought together a group of fathers in San Diego. You called them the fraternity. Would you like yeah. to tell us about that? And yeah. it's limited to San Diego? It, well, the uh, our group is. Um, um, but the, the day after Jimmy died, um, a colleague of mine, um, he was uh, a, another attorney in San Diego. And, and we knew each other. I wouldn't say we were close friends. Um, um, but his son had been tragically killed. Uh, he was a passenger in a, in a car wreck um, in 2001. Richard calls me and says, um, I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, you have no idea how hard it's gonna be, but I do. Um, and you've just joined the worst fraternity there is but I'm gonna be checking in on you every two or three months and see how you're doing. And he did. Um, and then, um, and, and Richard, as I write in the book is his name, um, uh, his way of helping people is when he reads about a father who has uh, suffered the loss of a child in San Diego, um, he'll cold call, he cold calls them. Wow. And says, I've suffered the same, you know, same loss. Uh, uh, how can I help you? Um, and he did that uh, with another dad um, who uh, uh, his daughter was killed in a horrible car crash um, on August 9, 2010, two years to the day after Jimmy died. And I thought, you know, I should reach out to this guy, but I didn't. I wasn't. I wasn't there yet, Irene. You know, I wasn't there. Um, but Richard called them. Richard called them, and they got together for coffee. And then I write in the book how I, then Richard and this other uh, dad named Greg, how we uh, how we finally connected in 2013. So the three of us dads, we were the original founders of the fraternity that God forbid anybody ever has to join. Join. Yeah. yeah. And so then, you know, then we brought in, you know, other dads that we knew and, um, you know, we were, we're up to about 25 and, and, you know, meet every couple of months, uh, unfortunately with, with COVID that, you know, our meetings have been stunted, but, you know, uh, we've, we stay in touch and, and we'll get that going again. Well, it's good to, for people to know when they get your contact information, if they want to be a part of that. Yes. And you of all people in the universe, Casey, what is your message about the importance of healing? Why should they heal now or soon to share with our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience? Um, I, I think <clears throat> Ram Das, um, uh, speaking of Buddhists, um, it said it best uh, that, you know, we're, we're here on this life to learn and we are um, going to make several 
trips back through this life um, when we're in body and you know we're in ego. And if we're not using this time wisely to, to learn and grow uh, spiritual, spiritually and consciously, then we'll keep coming back until we do. So, um, um, so one of the things that, that we can do here in this life in body is to do our best to put ego to the side and use our time uh, to, uh, to be of, of, of service to others. It's not just you know, helping others who have suffered loss, but it's you know, being of service during the pandemic, being of service to the homeless, to those who are food deprived. You know, there's lots of ways to be of service and to form these deep connections with people because that's fundamentally what helping others is all about. It's, it's creating and opening the door to these deep connections and helping people learn how they can do the same with their friends, their family, their you know their colleagues at work, um, and you pass it forward. You absolutely passing it forward, and so, um, and and what I found, as others have, as you have, um, that there is no greater joy than when you can help others achieve a, you know, an obstacle uh, and get over an obstacle. And, and when you can watch their rebirth from someone who has been knocked flat on their back with a horrific loss or any loss and to watch them get up and, and, and reemerge as this new person that like the Leslie's uh, that are just helping so many other people uh, and telling their story. And the Leslie's are compassionate listeners for helping parents heal. I know you've interviewed Elizabeth Boisson. Just for what? people to know, there are quite a few interviews about helping parents heal on the podcast, everyone. And it's this amazing, inspiring organization that helps parents who have lost children. Yeah. and. So, to, but to witness that, it's like watch for me. It's like watching my grandchildren when they're born, and we just were blessed with the birth of Girl. our first granddaughter five days ago. And looking at her face, looking at her innocent face, that's pure joy. And 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 I see that same joy in others, in parents who have achieved that level of 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 progression in their healing, when they are now able to help others, I see the light and the joy in their faces. It, it really, and I'm experiencing it and so are you. It makes mm -hmm. a, 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 a tremendous difference. And, and, and you get to shine yeah. from the depths of your being in spite of the pain that you've suffered. Yeah. Jimmy, tell us all the ways everyone can connect with you. They all want to get on. They want to get your book. They want to get on your podcast. <laughs> they want to get on. They want to get on your website. And if you have a special offer for the members of our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience, bravo also. Let okay. 
All right. So the um, so first of all, our website, write me something beautiful.com. Um, remember Eric and what Jimmy told Eric, and you'll remember that. That's an easy way to, you know, to remember the website. Um, uh, we also have suffering is the only honest work.com, and that will provide you a link to our first book and uh, what that's about. We have caseygaunt.com. Now you have to spell that. C-A-S-E-Y-G-A-U-N-T-T, two T's, dot com. And that will provide you a link to our new book, uh, When the Veil Comes Down. And then you have to go to Hillary's website, my wife, who is a phenomenal cook. And she has a food blog called hereonearth.com. Now, Huron is spelled like the bird heron. It's H-E-R-O-N, earth, E-A-R-T-H.com. And if you need a fantastic recipe, go to that website. I mean, she is, you, you, it'll blow your socks off. And she posts weekly, so there's never any old recipes. There's always something fresh and new. So, oh, wow. Do we have podcast audience uh, <laughs> who are going to want to access that? I, I am sure. And you can also, if you want to contact me, you can contact me through writemesomethingbeautiful.com or my email address is Casey Gaunt, K-C-C-A-S-C-Y, uh, period, G-A-U-N-T-T, letter one, or probably number one, at gmail.com. And for, uh, for, for your patience and spending the time that you have listening to our story, um, I want to offer to you um, uh, access to get for free uh, the Kindle version of When the Veil Comes Down. And uh, when you hear this podcast, that uh, opportunity will be available for five days. That's fabulous. And I cannot tell you all how great a book it is. I mean, you would really enjoy reading this book and learn so much from it. Casey Gaunt, what is your tip for finding joy in life? Be open to all of the help that is coming your way from not only people that are on the other side that have already transitioned, but all the people here, be open to it, accept it, acknowledge it. And all of the, the beautiful things and amazing things that, that you experience, share it with others, you know, brighten their day. Let them know that this is, this is real and, and embolden them to share their stories because so many of them are hesitant to do that. They feel, oh, people are gonna think I'm crazy or uh, I'm making it up. You know, open the conversation. And as I said, um, if you can begin to really help others, not only here, but help others on the other side. If there was a relationship that, that you felt was broken when uh, your loved one transitioned, um, or it could be stronger, you can still help them. You can strengthen that relationship. You can rebuild that relationship and as my dad confirmed, by helping them over there, 
you're helping them proceed with their journey and their spiritual evolution. And if we all are doing that, just think how close we become on this side of the veil and the other side of the veil until there is no veil. That's right. Well, I always say, Casey, I'm sure you'll agree with me that wounded people wound other people. If mm. we can all heal, then we can, he there's so much that we can kind of fix in our interactions with others on this planet. Casey, the primary message in your book, when the veil comes down, bears repeating, there is coming a time when there will be no veil. There will be no separation between us on this side of the veil and our loved ones on the other side. When the veil comes down, that is where heaven will be. And that time is closer than we think. The key to unlock that door is helping others with their healing. You, your book, and Grief and Rebirth podcast are truly in sync. Mm. And I have no doubt that many in our Grief and Rebirth podcast audience are now inspired to read your compelling and healing book, When the Veil Comes Down, and begin their own healing journeys in earnest. Casey, thank you from my heart for this very special and very enlightening interview. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings and bye for now. Mm -hmm.